In his keynote panel at the 2020 Australasian Aid Conference, Farahani, Daniel Heineke and Matthew Dornan outlined the case for international labour mobility, look at the lessons learned from the first year of Australia's Pacific Labour Scheme and provide an initial assessment of recent recruitment reforms in Papua New Guinea. The Australasian Aid Conference is hosted by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University in partnership with the Asia Foundation. The panel is chaired by Ryan Edwards, Senior Policy Fellow at the Development Policy Centre. Who would like to be at the top of a poor country? <laughs> We've got a few? What about at the bottom of a rich country? Oh, a lot of people are not responding. Uh, well, growing up, so at, at the 10th percentile in the US, you'd be at around 7,800 in purchasing power terms, and you'd be at around half that in Haiti. So growing up poor in a poor country means that you've got near zero, on average, opportunity to achieve the levels of consumption that most of us in here probably take for granted. And being able to move to where you, with whatever skills and innate abilities you have, as a person can maximise your earnings potential is more or less the most effective development strategy known to humankind at this point in time. So welcome to our last keynote for today. I'm very, very glad you picked this one. It's going to be awesome. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Edwards. I'm part of the economics faculty here at the Crawford School and with the Development Policy Centre. Um, labour mobility between Australia and the Pacific is something we've worked on and advocated for for quite a while at the centre. And we do welcome the prioritisation of these initiatives within DFAT and the recent growth in both the Seasonal Worker Program and the Pacific Labour Scheme. I'm delighted to have with us three very distinguished speakers to talk about labour mobility for the next hour and a half of your time. Farahani joins us today all the way from the Centre for Global Development up in Washington, D.C., the second best development think tank in the world. <laughs> um, and she's going to present the high-level case for labour mobility from very much a global perspective. Our second speaker is Danielle Heineke, who is currently the first secretary of Pacific Operations and Development Branch. Yep, yep. And will give us an update on recent developments and lessons learned from the first year of the Pacific Labour Scheme with some forward reflections on what's coming. Our final speaker is Matt Dornan. Matt is a senior economist at the World Bank, whose team we work closely with on our Pacific Migration Research Program here. And Matt's going to give us an overview and an initial assessment of some recent reforms in Papua New Guinea, um, where labour mobility is now a key priority for the government, and they are piloting a new decentralised model of recruiting. So each will present for up to 20 minutes, and then we're going to take questions from the floor with a group discussion. So welcome, and over to you, Farah. So, good afternoon. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, as my title suggests, today I'm going to try to explain why labor mobility is an eminent part of our future and uh, why it would shape policy debates over the next decade. Before I start, though, although Ryan beat me, I do have a fun fact to ask, which some of you might be familiar with. Um, so, out of 100 Haitians who aren't poor, how many do you think live in the United States versus Haiti? I'll give you like 10 seconds to think. No? No one? Okay, no. 99. Close. So 82% lives in the United States, and only 18% of, uh, of 100 random uh, Haitians who escape poverty actually live in Haiti. So maybe it's not a, much of a fun fact after all. 
Um, so today I'm going to speak about two major global forces that um, make labor mobility irresistible. On one hand, we have the observed uh, wage gaps across similar workers in rich and poor countries, uh, which are massive and are very likely to persist, um, and with very little on the development agenda to substantially address those gaps, it is likely that um, these, these differences will be a major factor that pushes citizens of poorer countries to move to richer countries on the promise of gains in income. On the other hand, um, demographic changes in OECD countries are happening in such a way where over the next 30 years, um, OECD countries in total are going to lose up or are going to have 90, over 90 million people join the ranks of the retirees and none of them will be replaced in the labor force. So um, this dynamic will kind of shift the, shift the discussion in uh, OECD countries from thinking about how can we provide and protect jobs for our citizens to how can we find workers that do our job. So we start with the wage gaps and if we look at the consumption wage of workers in rich versus low-income countries along the scale of um, the level of education, we see two main things. First, the gap between the median worker at any uh, education level in, in rich or OECD countries are much bigger than those of workers in low-income countries. Um, for example, if we take the case of the Netherlands and Ethiopia, we see that while a person with secondary education in Ethiopia makes around 50 cents an hour, a similar person in the Netherlands makes around 10 or 11 dollars on the hour. So the, the, the difference is just massive and huge. Um, and then the second, the second thing that we see is that if we were to take the difference between workers with no education in the Netherlands and the, and the workers with no education in Ethiopia, and just think of that as the effect of being in the Netherlands isolating any education, we see that this effect dwarfs any improvement in income that comes from just pursuing higher education in Ethiopia. So this effectively what makes education in Ethiopia worthless because even if you pursue post-secondary education, you improve your income by maybe six folds, whereas a person with no education in the Netherlands just gains orders of magnitude of that. So some might say, okay, but you can't kind of deduce the effect of moving to the Netherlands just by looking at this data. And you're, you're somewhat right, but then one main point to remember is that, or two point, two maybe, the, I mean, these wage gaps, right, like just the fact that someone in the Netherlands earns maybe 20 times a person in Ethiopia at the same level, is just such a big gap that even if we control for factors that might have some confounding effect, it's really unlikely that this effect will diminish. So just by the nature of the big gap. But there, there have been some people who have done some studies to try to isolate the impact of living in a rich country versus a poor country. And we're looking here at the study from Clemens, Montenegro, and Pritchett, which tries to estimate the effect of being in a rich country by comparing workers with equal productivity. And how do they do that? So they take two workers who were born in the same country, educated in the same country, have the same level of schooling, so this controls for schooling and the quality of education, um, and share the same demographic uh, characteristics such as gender and age. And they, they compare, so the only difference they compare is 
what is the wage outcome of someone who works in the U.S. versus someone who stayed and worked in their home country. And on top of that, they also adjusted for what, what some people call the self-selection bias, which is the argument that um, migrants either positively or negatively self-select to move into richer countries. And when they do all these adjustments, we see that the wage gaps are still massive. They range between $10,000 to $19,000 a year um, across this small sample of countries. Um, yeah, which just means that even after you isolate the exact effect of um, being in a more productive place, the, the, the difference in outcomes are still um, big, and they are not so. Maybe this is tantamount to the slide. So it is not about who you are. It's mostly about where you are, which is what we call the place premium, um, which is massive. So if we take one second to think about like what causes this place premium and uh, um, is it likely to exist and how can we kind of get around it, I would take one step back and think about what actually drives that. So if we think about the basic economic model or the initial economic model that drove all the, or guided all this thinking about um, econ growth, growth economics or development policy. Um, this model defined the output as uh, fa factor accumulation, so human capital or physical capital, and uh, a multiplier of productivity or total, total factor of productivity, which we call A. Now, the way this model has been interpreted is that A is in the air because it's the productivity of a place. Um, so it's a public good, it's really easy to transfer. Uh, rich countries are supposed to kind of give it to poor countries through aid or through knowledge transfer, etc. Um, and then since A is in the air, then A is probably going to converge very fast to the levels of high income countries. So then the main barrier to kind of growth and improvement in income levels in low income countries was to just accumulate as much capital so that the level of capital in poorer countries equalizes with the level of capital in richer countries. Now, also, because A was expected to be a public good and uh, a factor that will converge very fast, it was thought that the return on investing in capital will be very high. So all we need to do is just to find or mo mobilize savings from rich countries into poorer countries. Um, investing capital, as A converges, capital will grow to equalize with the uh, level of capital in richer countries, income will increase, and then wages will equalize. And in this world, labor did not need to move, labor just needed to wait until uh, the return on itself is just higher and equal to that of richer countries. But this was wrong, right? Uh, this sequence just did not happen, and the main reason the sequence did not happen is because A didn't converge. In fact, A may be diverged, which means, in simple English, which means the factor which was supposed to drive growth turned out to be the problem of why we don't have growth today. So A explains most of the difference in uh, cross-country income levels, which also in turn explains the difference in the marginal product on labor, which is wages. So to summarize, <laughs> there are massive wage gaps. And these wage gaps are just driven by the fact that you are in a more productive space. You are in a place where there's a premium on wages, which is what we call the place premium. This place premium is driven by the fact that there are differences in sp productivity in different spaces, but we don't really know what drives this difference in spatial productivity. So this leads us to two conclusions, really. The first is that whatever you think is the best you can do for the, the citizens of poorer countries, 
labor mobility can probably do better than that. And this is simply because the gains on labor mobility just exceeds by orders of magnitude the gain from any successful or even gold standard uh, poverty reduction program. Um, and also like a perk maybe is that labor mobility is also free. So for example, we have, we have a gold standard program uh, on the basis of which some people have won lots of prizes and recognition. Um, and we see that if we just look at the average impact across countries in which this program was implemented, we see that they invest around $4,900 uh, four, $4, over two years to generate a return of $344 per year in the third year. And it's very unclear whether this $344 is going to last over the individual's lifetime. So basically, just comparing that by a year of working in a country such as the United States, the difference is just, what, 40? 40 times, maybe. The other conclusion that we get to is that just an incremental increase by the people who are able to move to do jobs in richer countries uh, will likely produce billions, if not trillions, of gains uh, of dollars in gains to the global economy, which is just a lot more than the complete, uh, complete liberalization of trade. Now, if we move to the other force, um, we see that over the next 30 years, the aging population or the, the kind of phenomena of an aging population in OECD countries, although it has been happening for the past two decades, over the next 30 years, it's turning into a crisis in the making. So compared to now, in 2050, the OECD will have 120 million workers less. Uh, so 120 million workers less, whereas they'll have 95 million retirees kind of moving into that group. And this is a phenomenon that has never been seen before, right? These are just some raw numbers from some countries which show that over the, so this is between today and 2050, this is how the changes in working age groups and retirees is going to happen. Um, so this is an unprecedented phenomenon. We've never seen this before. We're moving, uh, some countries at least are moving into a world where there are more old than young. And what this means is that there's some imbalance, right? We're heading into some imbalance where the, the ratio of young people to, poor, to older people is declining, which just threatens or kind of shakes the basis of social security systems that have been put in place which, in, in these OECD countries, which are dependent on having a growing, growing base of uh, working age population to retirees. Now, if we just do some basic calculation to try to understand how many people does OECD countries need just to keep the same, same proportion of uh, working age population to retirees, we see that between now and 2050, there needs something like 300 million new workers, which they don't have. So they're really faced with four options. They're either going to cut benefits, so extend their retirement age, etc., or they're going to increase the taxes on the young and these taxes in most OECD countries are extremely high already, or they're going to create some savings, which we still don't know how they're going to get to, or they're just going to have to recruit workers from abroad. So out of all these four impossible options, just recruiting labor from abroad is probably the least impossible option. And if we just take one second to look at developing countries, we see that the, 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 the trend there is just quite the opposite. Like most developing countries have booming young populations, Actually, over the next 50 years, we predict that, sorry, 30 years, not 50 years, we predict that 1.4 billion 
new working age people will enter the labor force in developing countries, right? And just by doing some basic estimations, we can think or say that 40% of these 1.4 billion will not have the chance of meaningful employment in their countries just because of A, did not converge, uh, productivity just didn't pick up in, those, in most of those countries. So there is an opportunity, right? There is a, like, a massive opportunity for this youth to be the future labor force of the world because the problem is not there is no people in the world there's no global labor shortages. The problem is labor shortages in a very specific set of countries. So the future is really about moving to think how can we, how can we fill the labor shortages in OECD countries. Um, we see, for example, if we take the case of the US, we see that the fastest growing jobs in the United States will be uh, jobs that cannot be automated, cannot be outsourced, and are low skilled. Uh, and the growth in these jobs in the very near future, by 2028, will probably exceed the growth in the total labor force in the United States. So there will be serious gaps that need to be filled with no workers to actually provide um, the labor needed. So the future is thinking about how can we move existing labor in the world into jobs that cannot be filled in richer countries. Labor mobility is not only the future, it's actually already happening. We see it happening here, we see it happening in Japan, we see it happening in Germany, in the UK, in Canada, etc. So the question is, how can we start preparing for this future? Like, how can we start thinking of a labor mobility that is faster, that is better, that is less risky to the migrant, uh, less exploitative and more rewarding for the migrants, for their sending countries, and also for countries that need these workers? So I'll leave you with that question, and thank you very much. Hi everyone, thanks Farah for that. It's great to get the theory behind what we're doing um, and I think what you've outlined exactly explains the policy rationale both from a development perspective but also from an Australian domestic policy perspective that explains our shifting policies around labour programs. So I just wanted to first of all before I kick off just acknowledge all the people in the room that already work on labour mobility that know a lot more than I do. So um, thanks to thanks to everyone here that's contributed a lot to where the Australian schemes are at, from those of you that have a research background to the, to the PLF who are here, as well as my team. So um, I'm going to first of all just kick off with a little bit of what is the scheme, what is the Pacific Labour Scheme, a little bit about where we're at now, effectively 18 months in. Um, oh, sorry, sorry to acknowledge Chloe here as well from New Zealand, because um, we work very closely with New Zealand on all of these schemes, so we're learning from each other. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about labour mobility as part of our Pacific step up. It is really important, as I think you all heard in the Minister's speech this morning. And then I'll talk a little bit about our challenges going forward, which is where we really rely on the partnerships across government and across the community, as well as with Pacific countries to, to take forward. So first of all, Pacific Labour Scheme, a lot of people here have been behind it. It's not something that happened just like that. There has been a lot of, I guess, policy pushes for us to look at this as a solution both in Australia and in the Pacific. So thanks to those that have actually pushed this over And I don't think what we've got at the moment, the Pacific Labor Scheme, is static. It will keep evolving as needs evolve as we learn the lessons. So 16, we've, we created a Pacific Labor Facility, um, which creates is an intermediacy essentially between Demand, in the, demand here in Australia and supply in the Pacific. And the reason that we've done that is because 
the market in itself wouldn't work if we didn't have that facilitation role. But as time goes on, it will change. So what, where we're at now is we've got a scheme that basically allows Pacific workers um, on the basis of demand from Australian employer, employers, we've got 63 of those at the moment, grow, but growing by day by day, to labour market test in Australia. If they can't find someone for a job in Australia, they can basically find someone from the Pacific to work in any sector as long as, as, long as it's in a regional and rural area, which essentially only really excludes Sydney, Melbourne, greater area, Mel, uh, Wollongong, Newcastle, um, and Brisbane, what have I forgotten, parts of Perth as well. So, so it's really broad, it can be anywhere. Um, at the moment we have 868 Pacific Islanders working in Australia and they're on one to three year visas. This is quite different to the seasonal worker program in the sense that it is in low skilled but also semi-skilled jobs. So there is an opportunity for upskilling on the job, there is an opportunity to fill some of the professions that FARA outlined that sit in those higher skilled categories. We, I can go, we've got pretty good data on our website that those that are really interested can have a look at, but obviously the growth um, has been varied across sectors. So Meatworks has been the big one, um, and the reason for that is really demand and supply. In Australia there hasn't been, the meatworks industry is used to working with migrant labour, they're comfortable, it's very hard to get workers um, in those areas. Hospitality and tourism, it, it's, it's, it's number two, so we have 130 workers in hospitality and tourism. Agriculture is growing. Aged care, it, it's pretty low at the moment, we've only got 21, but it's quickly, we, we are looking at new recruitments to start in Canberra very soon, so it will grow. Um, but aged care is really important, particularly from a gender perspective. That's where a lot of the, the female jobs we hope to see growth in. Forestry isn't doing as well as at five and fishing and aquaculture about 30. At the moment we're expecting to get to about 12,000 Pacific workers by the end of this financial year. I hope that's right, Jemima. Um, but, but what's really important is that... 1,200. 1,200, sorry. 1,200. Wow, that would be a huge growth. Um, so I think what's really important as well is that, although I've outlined numbers, um, sometimes we get driven by numbers, it's actually also about people. Um, and the people-to-people -people links is really important in this. And because we are dealing with humans in all of this, both in their families, the challenges all really are around humans. So, um, yes, there's an economic case, but we, we're really trying to understand it from that perspective. And as Ryan said at the beginning, um, this is about creating opportunities. So it doesn't, it doesn't create, it creates a pathway. And that's really what the Pacific Labor Scheme is about. At the end of the day, um, it's still about the choice of the individuals the communities um, and the countries themselves have sovereignty over what their labour policies are. So that's really important in the partnerships that we have. So just getting on to impact, um, I guess just sitting in on bilateral discussions that happen at all levels, so at the Prime Minister level, at the Minister's level, the one thing that features all the time is the importance of labour mobility to the Pacific. It's really important for them because they can see the opportunities that come back from remittances, um, but also from the opportunities that's giving for families and communities. And normally communities are quite organised, in the, well not all the time, but in many cases they're quite organised in terms of we're sending this person and there's a plan about how those remittances will be distributed. So it is really important um, as part of our bilateral relationship with the Pacific. It's often, the second, the second thing is that this is very much being pitched as a win-win. So it's a win for Australian employers who can't find workers in, reliable good workers in Australia for various reasons, 
um, as outlined before, we do have job shortages in many sectors, particularly in low and semi-skilled, but also with regional postcodes. Um, and it's also a win for Pacific labourers. I don't need to outline the benefits. There's been lots of studies by the World Bank that show the level of remittances that go home, <laughs> even from the seasonal worker program, is quite high, so around 8,850 per seasonal worker per placement here in Australia. So. I guess just to, just to highlight that the win-win part is really important for this to be sustainable over the long run, and I think it does um, link into, I think, some of the policy arguments that Farah's trying to put to us with the numbers is, if it's win-win, you will get evolution of our policies on both sides of the shop. Um, the second part of it is the remittances. That was highlighted this morning in the, in the Minister's speech, and I think we heard before about Tonga having now having remittances from the Seasonal Worker Program that's over the amount that we provide in development and trade. Now that's important, but I, I guess what we want to underline here is that remittances is only part of the solution. Education, health, all the things that the development program bring actually enable labour mobility, particularly into the higher skilled areas, which is what which is what Pacific Islanders actually desire. They want to be, they do want to move into those higher skilled jobs. So remittances is important for communities, government, but we can't lose sight that it's not the only thing um, that we're going to be doing as part of our bilateral relationships. The next thing really is about whether this is transformational um, for the Pacific. And I think, I know there's some studies going on and I'm looking at Richard here because he's looking at Vanuatu quite a lot. Vanuatu has now around 15,000 workers um, in New Zealand and Australia. And that in a country of their size is actually transformational, particularly because a lot of them come from rural areas. They're in the outer islands of Van Vanuatu. And the anecdotal evidence that we've had coming back is that it is really changing the political economy of Vanuatu because now there is actually another income source. It's not just government. It's not just the role of MPs is changing. Um, there's an incentive to make sure you have a good law and order record because then you can't get a police check to come to Australia and New Zealand. So all of those things, aside from the cash injection into outer islands, are really important, I guess, in the governance of the Pacific. We do recognise as well, though, that in places like Papua New Guinea that have larger populations, it will be harder to get that transformational impact through labour programs. So the challenges are going to be really different across the Pacific because of the different, the different arrangements and the different population size and the different opportunities in those countries. I'll now go on to some of the challenges. And I just wanted to start off with putting the labour mobility programs in context. And again, this is a point that's been made by others, is that the intra-skills migration within the Pacific is also really important. That's an ongoing conversation that we're having with the Pacific. Many countries in the Pacific actually import a high level of foreign labour. So the upskilling that happens through development programs, through tertiary institutions, through institutions like the APTC, is really, really important for countries themselves employing their own workers in their own country and jobs. So we can't, in focusing on labour mobility, we do need to really keep a strong focus on what's happening domestically in labour markets, and that's very important in the work that we're doing to underpin where we put our effort. Um, the first real challenge is around social impact on families. It, it's brought up all the time, um, and we know that that's a really important. Well, we're funding a lot of the research that's going into looking at social impact. We're continually asked, and we were last week, about um, what's Australia going to do around the high level of marriage breakups that are happening around um, workers coming to Australia. And I think 
this is where the sort of individual agency comes in, um, but also making sure that there's enough support in Australia and before they go around how people are going to cope with the challenge of being of living offshore. So we do acknowledge that that's an ongoing battle um, for families, for governments, and at the end of the day, um, there still is individual choice in this, but we've got to make sure that we're giving people the right tools to do that, and that is a really important part of the program. Secondly, um, I just want to again point out that if this is this isn't this is much harder in Melanesia, where we don't have the same level of migration and diaspora in Australia that we do in Polynesia, Micronesia, where there's smaller populations, and through New Zealand, I guess, and the way that New Zealand and Australia operate in terms of free movement, there is a lot higher diaspora communities which actually changes support base a lot for Micronesia, uh, for, for Melanesian countries. So I know Matt will talk a little bit about the challenges around PNG, but just to let you know that Melanesia is really important to Australia in terms of trying to understand how we can have a greater transformational impact on Melanesian countries through labour mobility. The third one is really around remittance costs. Um, we commissioned a study looking at behavioural the behavioural economic using behavioural economics theory to look at why people predominantly use Western Union, which is trusted but at the same time costs more, which reduces the amount of money going back to communities in the Pacific. Um, and so there's a whole lot of work being done to reduce working with the Reserve Bank and others that we're funding. Um, to reduce remittances, but if we don't understand the behavioural aspects of remittances um, and, and even the family pressure that happens around remittances and how that flows back to people's choices in Australia when they're working here is really important. So just to, just to note, that's an that's a area of work that we need to do a lot more with our partners on. Fourth, health. So pre-existing health injuries is a huge challenge in the Pacific. I think you're all aware with um, the NCD challenge. Um, so... That, that is an ongoing issue um, and it is something that, it's a nut that we haven't yet cracked, um, but we will have to do it again in partnership in, in understanding what it means for employers, what it means for the health insurance policies that we have here. Gender, um, those of you that have seen statistics can see that with the growth of Meatworks, gender, uh, our gender statistics have got a lot worse. We're about 19% of our workers in Australia at the moment are female and that reflects Meatworks, essentially. Um, but just to let you know that what we're trying to do in sectors like Meatworks is really encourage employers in Australia who might traditionally think that type of job's been done by a man, that it can be done by a woman. And we are slowly trying to make inroads into that. So just to reflect on one recruitment um, in Warrnambool, in a Meatworks factory in Warrnambool in Victoria, we were able, the PLF was able to convince that employer to take on some women. Um, so I think the more that we can start to change gender stereotypes within Australian employers, that's going to be really important to changing the gender statistics. But it's also about which sectors we're able to get workers in. So if aged care can grow, and one of the big problems there has been, the, well, not problems, opportunities as well, has been the Aged Care Royal Commission. So as they start to look at what um, qualifications are required down the track, we will be able to better target um, Pacific workers to those skills. But the aged care is pretty conservative. Um, and obviously they work in high-risk environments. So it is an area of growth, but we do have challenges around the requirements, like um, how Pacific Islanders can be trained where they're required to work at a nursing centre to get their Cert 3 certificate, and there isn't many of those opportunities within the Pacific because the community looks after aged citizens in their own country. So 
they're some of the challenges that we know that we're working on because that's going to be constrained to improving gender outcomes under the scheme. The sixth big challenge is um, really here in Australia, and that is around keeping, I guess, specific preferences on the table. Um, many of you around the table will be aware of, um, I guess, debates within Australian politics around demand for an agricultural visa, which would essentially be, it's not clear what it exactly is, but it would be unsponsored. So that, that really means that the opportunity for Pacific Islanders um, wouldn't be there to the same extent if there was a new visa class. So what we're really trying to do is to demonstrate that this, these schemes work, they meet the demand of Australian farmers, workers are efficient, and that we're picking the right people. So the relationship that we have with partner governments, with employment, labour ministries in the, each of the countries that we work is really important. If farmers have good experiences, for example, or employers have good experience in different sectors, they'll keep recruiting, and that's what we've found. So you start off with a good five, they'll go to 10, they'll go to 20, they'll go to 50. But if you don't have the right first five, it really um, undermines the whole opportunities around labour mobility going forward. It's also important to note that, um, as I said, this is an important part of our foreign policy. And people from other countries in Asia, for example, Middle East, they're regularly coming into Australia through other migration schemes, but for the Pacific, our nearest neighbour, our family, we do need these kinds of schemes to be continually on the table because Pacific Islanders aren't necessarily having opportunities at the same scale and level to come in under the normal migration schemes that require certain lumps of points, education, etc. The seventh real challenge, and I know we have people from APTC here today, is really around making sure that we're getting the work that we're doing in labour mobility and what we're doing through our um, technical coalition support, but also what we're doing tech block lined up. Um, are we delivering the right courses um, to meet Australian demand? Also, what's really important is that it's not just what we do overseas. It's for Australian jobs, it's also what we do for, for Pacific Islanders to meet demand in their own countries. So we really, we, we, what we can't do, because this is important to the Pacific, is we can't just take skilled people um, from Pacific and put them in jobs here because that, that's not the way it should be. That said, um, migration and the incentive to educate is always going to be an important part of life for every individual, um, and it's not something we want to completely close down. But just getting that balance right between what we're putting our effort into in the education sector is really important. And finally, just circular mobility. So Pacific, Pacific countries, particularly in Polynesia, they're really interested in how do we make sure that people that have been working in Australia for three years they might move from being a kitchen hand to an apprentice chef to being an actual chef in a five-star hotel. Um, how do we make sure that they come back and the Pacific benefits from the skills that they've gained in Australia? So that is a really important policy agenda um, and each country in the Pacific will deal with it differently, but it is something we definitely um, want to pursue and are pursuing. We haven't yet got to the point where the first lot of Pacific uh, labour scheme workers have returned to the Pacific. The other important part of it is what people do with their remittances and are they using that to start a business. So Kiribati was, um, Tuvalu, the Tuvalu Minister for Trade was telling me last week that they really hope that what they can do with the workers that have been in Australia working on fishing can go back, use those investments, understand how a business operates and then start to implement that within Tuvalu as part of their industry development program. So I think the Pacific have a lot of ideas about how they can benefit from this. 
Just to conclude, um, there's two kind of key takeaways for this audience. Um, the first one is we can't solve all of these problems ourselves. We do need to work in partnership with you as researchers, as Pacific Island countries, communities. So all of these ideas, we don't, we don't have all of the solutions to these and we are gonna have to work as a team to solve them. And then lastly, this is evolving. So there will never, the, the government, as I think you heard this morning from Minister Hawke said, you know, we don't see these as static either. He said that the policy in the whole of government space around labour and migration is keeping on evolving. So from our perspective, what we really want to do is maximise the opportunities for the Pacific through these schemes as they evolve. Thank you. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I'm presenting on labour mobility from PMG. Uh, and particularly, I want to describe some recent changes to uh, sending arrangements um, that have uh, taken place in PNG. Um, labour mobility has become a real priority for the new, well, it's not so new anymore, but the, the relatively new government um, in Papua New Guinea. Um, that's very clear from um, the budget statement, um, from speeches, um, both by the Prime Minister and the Treasurer and also from recent reforms to labour sending arrangements. So I want to describe um, these changes um, and then offer a few thoughts on them. Much of what I'm going to talk about is based on conversations um, myself and colleagues have had um, with uh, Papua New Guinean officials, um, both at the national level uh, and at the sub-national level, particularly um, in Medang District. Also, conversations with DFAT um, and with PLF. So, I, I want to thank everyone and some of them, as some of you are in this room, for, for um, I guess, being so accommodating and generous um, with your time. Um, and I do want to just briefly acknowledge a few individuals um, uh, Kenya Parsons um, and Sun, and Sun Hua Yi, Kenya's uh, over there, my colleague from the World Bank, um, who's working on this with me. Um, and uh, also uh, Natasha Turiamoka, who I think is on the other side of the room, um, over here. So Natasha um, has been um, one of the people that has helped establish um, the recruiting arrangements in, in Medang District, which I'll talk about shortly. Um, and she's now in Canberra, um, uh, commencing a PhD. So great to have you here. So I'll begin with the obvious. Um, PNG is the, the sleeping giant um, of Pacific labour mobility. Um, it accounts for, I think it's over three quarters um, of the Pacific's entire population. Um, and yet it has sent very, very few workers um, to Australia or New Zealand um, under the various temporary employment schemes that are on offer to Pacific Islanders. This is surprising uh, for a number of reasons, um, particularly in the case of Australia, I think. Um, PNG has a very young population. Uh, I just looked it up, actually. The average age in PNG is 22 years. Uh, in Australia, it's about 37. Uh, PNG also has very high rates of um, formal sector unemployment. Um, so close to 85% of the workforce is engaged in informal uh, employment rather than the formal sector. Um, PNG also has an abundance of um, unskilled uh, and low-skilled um, labour, which is exactly what is in short supply uh, in regional Australia. PNG, of course, is also very close to Australia. It's our closest neighbour. Um, it has a large agricultural sector, um, especially when you compare it to other Pacific Island countries. Um, it has people that make a living in industries um, where Australian employers are looking for workers. So think um, strawberry um, farming, for example. So the obvious question is, why has PNG not sent more workers? Uh, PNG has plenty of able um, workers that fit the profile. Um, so I think we need to look more at the demand side. Um, why are Australian uh, 
why New Zealand employers um, recruiting elsewhere uh, in Vanuatu uh, primarily, um, but also in places like Tonga uh, and in Timor-Leste. Um, the research that has been undertaken to date on this suggests that sending country governance um, is an important uh, reason um, for this situation. And I want to point in particular to work done by Richard Curtin, I'm sitting over here, um, and also Stephen Hills on this topic. Um, so in their study, um, Richard and Stephen identify three models for recruitment of workers under the Seasonal Worker Program and um, under the New Zealand equivalent, the Recognised Seasonal Employer Scheme, um, through which employers um, are connected um, with workers. There is direct recruitment by employers. Um, there's uh, use of agents uh, in the sending country. Um, and then there is use of a work-ready pool that is established by government. The work-ready pool um, is often the favoured recruitment method for governments. Um, it gives them more oversight. Uh, it gives them more control um, over the recruitment process. Uh, and every Pacific Island country that participates in these schemes has established uh, a work-ready pool. Workers selected into the, the pool are considered work-ready. Um, they're, they're presented uh, to employers um, who are seeking to recruit, um, typically through the sharing of a short list um, of potential workers, and they're then interviewed um, by employers. That's a typical process. While many governments um, prefer this method of recruitment, um, employers have often preferred to bypass it. Um, in favour of direct recruitment or by using local agents um, to, to, to recruit workers. Um, and this is allowed, uh, or one, of the, one or both of these, um, these models is allowed in most specific island countries. Um, where the use of local agents isn't allowed, um, past workers often informally act as agents and basically select workers on behalf of the employer. PNG um, is one of two participating governments that has not allowed direct recruitment or use of agents. Um, so the work-ready pool is effectively the only pathway for employment. So according to Richard, um, this is a key reason for why numbers from PNG or worker numbers from PNG have not been higher. Um, the PNG government has insisted on the use of this work-ready pool. Um, at the same time, um, it has not adequately resourced the management of that work-ready pool and uh, or, or ensure that the, the work-ready pool is managed efficiently um, or effectively. And these constraints, bear in mind, uh, are in a context where PNG is effectively competing for market share um, with other Pacific Island countries. So now I want to, talk, uh, I want to turn to the current situation um, and to some recent reforms that have um, or are being implemented um, by the PNG government um, as part of this emerging focus on labour mobility. Um, and there are some familiar faces there, including the, the current treasurer of PNG, of course. Um, in addition to the constraints that, that Richard's work identified, um, there are a number of new challenges that um, have emerged more recently. Um, one is the rollout of the national ID card uh, in PNG. So a national ID uh, is now a prerequisite to getting a passport uh, in PNG. Unfortunately, um, the rollout has been um, problematic. Most Papua New Guineans remain without a national ID card. Uh, it's very difficult to actually obtain one. Um, and so this is a real barrier to workers wanting to, to go to Australia or New Zealand. Another issue, and I guess this is more of an ongoing issue, um, relates to the management um, of the work-ready pool. So as I mentioned, the numbers of Papua New Guineans being um, recruited through the work-ready pool remains very small. Um, at the same time, people are still joining the work-ready pool. And so it's, it's increasing at a steady rate. There are now over 3,500 workers um, in the work-ready pool, 
uh, and compare that to the 300 workers who are actually recruited each year. Most of those are not through the work ready pool, by the way. And so what you, what you get is a situation where um, people go to the expense of joining the work ready pool. It's not a cost-free exercise. And then they sit there and they're never contacted. How exactly um, the labour sending unit selects workers from that work ready pool um, remains rather opaque. And that, rightly or wrongly, um, feeds into perceptions about corruption and so forth. There's no ranking of workers um, in the work ready pool. Um, we were told that workers are selected on the basis of both um, employee preference um, around specific things, so height, for example, or English ability. But we're also told that equity uh, is an important, um, an important driver um, for, for, um, for the nomination uh, of workers. Um, and that's equity both across PNG, so the, the labour sending unit will try to select workers from across um, all of PNG's provinces, um, which in, given the, the very diverse nature of PNG, one can imagine how that might be a problem if you're recruiting for, for, um, for one farm, uh, to take an example. Um, workers are also being nominated on the basis of when they join the work ready pool. So it's effectively like a first come, first served basis. But because recruitment has been so minimal, they're trying to contact people who joined the work ready pool four years ago. Um, and then they're not contactable and they have to go to the next person. So the work ready pool could be managed uh, more effectively. I'll leave it at that. There have been a number of quite significant changes recently um, to the way in which um, PNG selects uh, and mobilises workers. So I'll talk you through these changes before offering a few thoughts. Um, so just a little over two weeks ago, um, the key functions of the labour sending unit um, that had been based in PNG's Department of Labour and Industrial Relations uh, were moved to a unit um, in Treasury. Um, that unit uh, is going to be overseen by a Ministerial Committee on Labour Mobility. Uh, the committee is being led by the Deputy Prime Minister and by the Treasurer. It also comprises the Police Minister, the Planning Minister, the Immigration Minister, the Foreign Minister uh, and the Labour Minister. So, so you get a sense for, for the, the priority with which the PNG Government um, is, is giving Labour Mobility. The move of these um, labour sending unit functions to Treasury um, is closely linked to another initiative, um, what's called the Regional Pilot Initiative, um, which has been, um, I guess, slowly developed over the course of the last year um, by, and really led by a small group of members of Parliament um, who, who effectively want to see labour mobility opportunities afforded to their constituents. So the regional pilot is currently being used to recruit workers for both the seasonal worker program uh, and for the Pacific Labor Scheme. So it's not being used by New Zealand, uh, at least not yet. As the name would suggest, the regional pilot um, aims to decentralize recruitment um, of workers in PNG uh, using subnational governments. And that's either at the provincial, um, at the district, which is one level below, or even at the ward level, which is one level below once again. Um, the pilot is being trialled in between four to nine locations. The exact number really depends on whether you consider um, a, a location that has established systems but hasn't actually recruited anyone to, to be, to, to be um, partaking um, in, in the initiative. Um, implementation of the pilot is most advanced uh, in uh, Medang district, which has seen about 100 workers recruited to jobs in Australia. Uh, that's primarily through the Pacific Labor Scheme, uh, both for meatworks and horticulture. 
Um, between 40 to 50 workers have been recruited in Enga province uh, and are due to travel to Australia. I understand they're travelling to Australia in March um, where they'll be employed in horticulture. Uh, and then in Lay, um, a labour hire company is currently in the process of recruiting um, workers for the meatworks industry. Now, the really interesting, interesting thing about the regional pilot is the, the heterogeneity of it. So recruitment is happening at that provincial level um, in Enga. Um, it's happening at the district level in a number of places, including in Medang. Uh, and then it's also even happening at the ward level. Um, and that's, that level is really uh, determined by who is driving this. Um, models of recruitment also vary across all of these different locations. So, for example, Medang District um, is using a ward-based selection model um, in which development committees at the ward level, um, which again sit below the district, um, they nominate workers who are then screened um, by the, the um, District Development Authority. Uh, they're screened again by the Pacific Labour Facility um, and then they're interviewed um, by, layer, uh, by Australian labour hire companies. And, and that's shown in, in this um, slide, which actually Kenya um, prepared. So thank you, Kenya. Lay is using a completely different approach. So it has opened a public call for nominations, um, effectively asking people um, to, to submit an application. Um, that selection, as I mentioned, is only in its infancy, but one would presume that nominations will then be screened um, by the District Development Authority uh, and then a short list um, provided to employers. In Enga, uh, nomination is being facilitated by NGOs. So I understand that the Enga Women in Agriculture group um, has been asked by the by Governor Ipetas uh, to nominate workers um, for the Pacific Labor Scheme. So that um, that diversity uh, really speaks to to the decentralised na uh, nature of this regional pilot. Um, one would be tempted to argue that recruitment models are being developed locally, um, even that they are bottom up. But at the same time, and conflicting with that view, um, is the fact that members of parliament are very much involved in the development um, of these recruitment models. Um, be that Governor Ipathas in Enga, uh, be it the Honourable um, Brian Kramer um, uh, in Medang. That involvement of political leaders um, is not unusual um, for, for decentralised initiatives in PNG. Um, People like the late Bill Standish, um, Joseph Ketan, um, Colin Wiltshire have all written quite extensively about the very politicised nature um, of decentralisation in PNG, um, particularly as it relates to the allocation of constituency development funds, um, which are funds, I guess, um, provided for the development of districts, but which are allocated um, along uh, electoral uh, boundaries. So I think that involvement of political leaders in, in the regional pilot um, carries both benefits and risks. The engagement of political leaders has certainly helped to, uh, to facilitate recruitment at that local level. Um, and politically, it is very important in PNG. Um, not very much happens at the local level um, without the buy-in um, of the local member of parliament. Political engagement has also helped to address some of the issues that, that I, I mentioned before. So, for example, in the case of the, the national ID card, um, you, you literally have uh, members of parliament who are pushing the bureaucracy in, in order to hurry up the processing um, of these cards so that workers can get their ID, get their passport and actually travel to Australia. Some MPs have used their um, constituency development funds to pay for the pre-departure costs of workers. Um, so that's something that is happening uh, in Medang currently, um, although the, the plan is that workers will 
repay those funds, although there isn't a system put in place to facilitate that. You know, the benefit of that, obviously, is that workers that would otherwise be unable to participate can do so. Uh, Pre-departure costs are quite expensive. They're about 1500 Australian dollars. Um, but there are, of course, risks associated with that. So members of parliament clearly have um, political incentives for, for promoting these schemes, and there is a risk that opportunities might be allocated um, along uh, political lines, which is something that, of course, happens with... Um, with uh, constituency development funds in PNG. Um, I think there are other questions that stem from this, this politicised and quite diverse nature of decentralised recruitment that the PNG government is going to need to consider um, as this, um, this initiative expands. Um, one question is what happens to the involvement of districts um, in these schemes when the local member of parliament changes? Um, you know, how can local recruitment systems and processes um, be, be formalised uh, so that they can withstand those changes in government? I do think there's a question around the use of um, constituency development funds to, to pay for pre-departure costs. Um, while there are clear benefits for workers, um, the returns from labour mobility, are, in my view, they're primarily um, uh, private. Uh, they go to the worker and their families. Um, so there's an issue around use of these public funds uh, for that purpose. More broadly, um, there are questions um, such as um, how a, a national approach is taken to these regional initiatives. So if PNG has a, a, a liaison officer in Australia, for example, who promotes Papua New Guinean workers, how do they do that? Uh, do, how do they decide whether they'll point an employer to, to Enga or, or to Madang or, or to some other uh, participating district or province? Um, how do they explain that recruitment processes are different across all of these um, jurisdictions? Um, and they need to do so in, in an employer-friendly way, of course. Another consideration, and, and I'll end on this, um, is sustainability. So in the case of the regional pilot, Australian support, uh, particularly from the Pacific Labor Facility, or PLF, has been really crucial um, to the success. Um, so in Madang, um, the PLF has supported the DDA uh, in establishing its processes for recruitment of workers. Um, it has helped to vet workers. Um, it has provided support to applicants with things like um, you know, lessons in, in interview etiquette. And most importantly, it has acted as a, as a de facto recruitment agent, connecting employers um, with that pool of workers. Um, and the importance of that role really can't be understated. Um, uh, and I have to commend the PLF um, for on doing a fantastic job in actually getting this this model off the ground uh, in um, a, well across PNG. Um, numbers from PNG are, are expanding, and I do think that we're, we're likely to see them expand um, quite rapidly um, over the course of the next year. That level of engagement um, by the PLF, of course, comes at a cost. It's expensive. Um, and as the number of workers from PNG expands, um, that model of support will need to change in order to be sustainable. Will district development authorities or, or implementing units at the provincial level be capable of taking over those functions? Um, perhaps, um, particularly with the appropriate support from the national government. But these are the sort of issues that the PNG government really does um, need to give some serious consideration to as the scheme exp expands. So to sum up, um, labour sending arrangements uh, in PNG are changing rapidly. Um, given PNG's lack of success to date in sending workers um, uh, under these schemes, uh, there's that drive to reform uh, sending arrangements. And, and I think that, broadly speaking, that's a good thing. 
Um, outcomes to date are promising. There, there is significant political buy-in. Uh, worker numbers are, are increasing. Um, but there are unanswered questions and, and risks associated with reforms to date. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Farah. That was, that was great. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, so, yeah, oh, my notes say I'd like to welcome everyone back, but we're already down here. I hadn't seen the layout before coming. I, ha I have a lot of questions myself, but that would be a complete abuse of my privileges, Chair, if I was to take up the valuable time from you guys. So, let's, let's open up the floor. Um, we'll, we'll do one at a time. Please do introduce yourself. Please do say who your question is particularly directed at, or if it's at everyone. And please try to keep your questions to one sentence with a question mark at the end. And any comments really short. Um, but yeah, let's move, it, let's move it along. Do we have any students in the room? I run our PhD seminars here and we normally go to them first. So do we have any students who have questions? Does it? No? No students? Okay. Then uh, the floor is open then. Yes, please. Um, I've got a question about the And it seems it, because it's a demand-led program, it funds all the work with the workers that they trust here in Australia, and that they then perhaps obviously rely on their friends to go back and find people. I, I don't know what policies we have in place for ensuring that the Outer Islands or that the people who don't speak good English or don't have good political connections are getting access to this. And especially when this is the win-win, but I think that's you know that's not good on the Australia side. Like the, you know, the farmers might not want those workers might be more difficult to integrate into our Australian labour. Yeah, look, I, I agree. I think that is uh, an issue. Um, I mean, I think yeah, ultimately these need to be employee-driven, these programs. So, um, yeah, you, you need to just provide support for um, those disadvantaged groups, would be my view. So, one way to do that, for example, might be to, um, I, I've mentioned that financing um, issue in PNG, and, and I do think there's a strong case for provision of, of microfinance. Um, to cover pre-departure costs for, for workers um, from, from places like the Outer Islands so for, um, uh, yeah, I guess, um, groups that just uh, have not been able to participate to the extent they really want to. Um, uh, in Tonga, there's a World Bank program which is, um, uh, includes an outreach component to those Outer Islands to try to boost participation amongst those groups. Just to add, um, I guess the main issue here is about the policies of the labour-sending countries. So some of them, like Southern Ireland, has been very focused on this issue and are interested in some kind of... Um, and, it, and it plays into the conflict there too, because um, this is an important part of the political economy, as, as Matt has mentioned in PNG. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how the PNG one works, um, because that is really a model of trying to get equity, which is how a lot of the Pacific countries work anyway, is that we've got to share the benefits, we've got to make sure all regions benefit. But I do think um, it, it is going to depend a lot on what they're, which, which model they have in place. So in Vanuatu with the private agents, it will be very much about relationships which drives recruitment, um, rather than necessarily who's the best person for the job, um, based on some kind of strict criteria that we would normally apply job selection. So it is going to be, I guess the answer is that it is, we, we do need to work really closely with partner countries to make sure, because there's a trade-off of 
you go for equity, you might not get the numbers. So how do you get that balance? And that's going to be something that Pacific governments need to kind of make a call on. Because I think most of them do understand that it is going to be easier sometimes to get people from peri-urban or urban areas, depending on the job. If it's a rural job, I mean, I think that's where the PMG pilot's going to be interesting because for rural jobs, you want people that are rural people because they're used to the kinds of conditions um, in rural areas, in agriculture sectors. Maybe I just follow on as well. Um, in Vanuatu, this is actually a really big issue. It's a concern about equity, and, and um, there's been also talk about uh, imposing quotas on the number of um, times that workers can return um, to Australia and New Zealand. Um, I mean, from, in my view, that's a really problematic approach, um, and I don't think we need to be thinking about this as a, a fixed market. The market can grow further, so if you want to provide people with those opportunities, we'll to expand the market rather than limit the participation of those who are already participating. Good afternoon to the panelists and to the house. Uh, my name is Samson Yudhutra, I'm the High Commissioner of NYSU in, in Australia, and I'm based here in Canberra, and you would be certainly wondering why I'm here today, so labour mobility is very, uh, very much of a priority of uh, my country, and I'm glad to see some familiar faces that I'm, I engage with uh, constantly and uh, sometimes a bit annoying because uh, <laughs> <laughs> labor mobility. But I have three questions, and I think other questions we could probably, uh, I, my office will probably uh, work together with the colleagues from the fact to further uh, all these questions. My first question would be about um, to the lady in the middle, I understand her from the fact. I have not met you yet. And, uh, <laughs> 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 you talked about different challenges that the labor mobility scheme but also the civic labor scheme are faced with. And one of the issues that uh, I did not hear today was on the super, mm. uh, yeah. superannuation. And I think that's a very important one as well that uh, probably some of the researchers in the house could also look into that on how to propose some uh, mechanisms on the way forward on that and on the super. And thank you very much for mentioning all the challenges because these are some of the challenges that the NATO has also put forward to defend to, to work on. Um, my other question would be in terms of uh, uh, when you do all your studies about you know the impact of labor mobility, positive or negative, towards uh, our countries, especially the seven countries. I I would pretty much want to see uh, from I requested that previously to Department of Employment to see a study, a similar study, but on the impact, positive impact, into the Australian economy of our seasonal workers back here in Australia. So I think this is really something that would be important for us and in countries so that. We understand how we contribute to your economy as much as you understand how you contribute to us. As you clearly mentioned, Madam, that this is a win-win situation. So that would be really something that you know, we could look into it in the future. And I think ANU is well placed to probably look into that. Uh, my last question would be in terms of uh, the first presenter, the third presenter. Uh, you, you, you talked about a lot of the different analysis that you've done. Um, I was wondering uh, if you have done any studies in the past where you would compare, actually, for example, if you take uh, two countries in, uh, in Africa, and because you were comparing the Netherlands with a uh, country in Africa, but um, have you uh, done any studies in comparing actually labor mobility within uh, Africa itself? Because when you're talking about uh, Netherlands and Ethiopia, it's like you're talking about the Maserati or Porsche versus, you know, a uh, uh, Renault or some other type of cars, you know. So I'd really be interested in seeing uh, if you have a study like that where, you know, brought, uh, proximity and see you know, whether you know, labor mobility from Ethiopia to Rwanda and those ones, and probably where you know, the, the realities are more close to each other, rather than taking somebody from Holland and comparing with someone from Ethiopia and 
in a way, the, the cost of living and the, the purchasing power is not the role of the same. Somebody who has never been to school in Holland might, might be thinking that, you know, they, I would win that much because the law has said that in my country, but in, in Ethiopia, somebody who hasn't been to school maybe is a completely different situation. So I'd like to see this proximity uh, in your future work, so that would be very interesting. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for those excellent questions. Um, if I had had a ninth problem, it would have been super. Um, so thank you for raising that. It is a problem we're working on at the moment. Um, so we're really looking at two steps at the moment. One of them is a pilot with your country um, that you may be aware of, and we're happy we've got some of our team members here today and we can talk a bit more about it with you afterwards. But one of the issues is we're going to do a pilot around super to see how we work with the existing system to increase the level of returns once people return. We know there's some constraints on our side. Um, but also people go back to the outer islands and they can't submit the return and then they don't even get the super. But we also have commissioned some work with the tax office to look at how we can look at long-term solutions around joining our um, superannuation arrangements. So there is better ways of providing funds over the medium term into your national provident funds, etc. Um, so ultimately we are looking at the broader regional integration agenda which does look at joining more of our systems across the Pacific. On the second point, yeah, excellent point, um, as it is a win-win for Australia as well. And there has, I should have mentioned it, but um, there has been some studies which look at the productivity of workers. Um, so, for example, ABARES looked into the productivity of uh, seasonal workers compared to backpackers, working holiday makers, and the, the productivity was, I think, looking at rates of 20% higher, 25% higher. So. That, that's a really important statistic that we use regularly when we're looking at, um, when, when we're promoting various specific labour mobility schemes. But I think the economic study that I think you're suggesting that looks at the overall benefit of these schemes to the Australian economy is a really good idea. So thanks for that suggestion. Right. Thank you. Um, so, you're right. Uh, it would probably be very different if we are kind of looking at mobility within Africa itself. We, we mostly focus on kind of comparing how much you're able to improve your outcomes when you move to a richer country, um, simply because we're trying to think that if people were to follow opportunity, um, how, how, better, how much better can they do if they move into like a much more productive space or a much more kind of richer um, Spain. I have not looked at mobility within Africa, but I have, for example, seen people move from Egypt to Jordan, for example. Um, these mostly will be like low-skilled workers that are unable to find uh, opportunity back in their home countries. They're able to find um, opportunities in, let's say, another developing host country, such as Jordan in this case. Um, and they, they are able to make uh, money, which goes a much longer way back home, right? So they are able to make uh, money in Jordan um, that would probably, like, as they rent it back home or as they say they go back home, it, it can help them go uh, a further away. Maybe it's not as moving from Egypt to, let's say, the UAE or from Egypt to, I don't know, Italy, but it's about yeah, trying to kind of make some money that can go a bit further than what you're able to access back at home. Yeah. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Sarah. Um, you introduced um, the panel today saying it's uh, talking around people and the transformation. Um, is there any work being done in the Sandin countries around cultural change? Um, is this going to have an impact on um, people's 
societies and culture. I mean, that, that actually might be something that um, colleagues in Department of Pacific Affairs might be more across, uh, Rochelle. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh. sorry. <laughs> the answer in short is he's working a lot of studies done in various areas. In Ireland, probably one of the most over researched countries, and I myself have been doing it for the last 15 years about RSC, and he's probably he's been talking it. Social changes, cultural changes, political changes. There's also some great um, research out there doing as well. Um, a lot of them, unfortunately, are hidden in master's thesis, things that are really looked for, but there are studies underway that are still currently being helped. Sorry. Thanks, Mike. Just to add, um, one of the things that we have a DFAT is a partnership with the World Bank and ANU, and that's to look at the impact in Australia as well as looking at the impact in Pacific countries. So it is very much, a, as I said at the beginning, as we evolve the policy and the way that the schemes work, we will be quite dependent in the findings from those research, which will vary enormously from country to country. So just to say it will underpin a lot of our sort of policy decisions. And hopefully, I guess, the way that the relevant ministries in Pacific countries also think about what their policies are so they can get the right balance between opportunity and social impact. And that will really vary between countries. We know that some countries have, had, have wanted really, really strong policies around limiting the opportunity so you might only get out once. They don't want, it, they don't want the, circular, the same people going out all the time because of the impact on families. Others don't mind. So this is, this is something that I guess specific countries particularly need to look at. Australia uh, under the schemes. Um, that medic panel doctors are only available in certain places. I think it's in Port Moresby and in Lay. So already, you know, if you're in a remote area, you have to travel to there, um, and, and that obviously involves cost. Um, the the actual um, medical clearance uh, as a fee involved there. Uh, then there are things like the passport fee, uh, police clearance. Um, there's typically um, uh, there, there's um, some immunisations that are required. Um, then there's pre-departure training, um, which uh, I think it's changed now, but um, historically it was only provided in Port Moresby. So for anyone in, in the New Guinea part of PNG, they had to fly to Port Moresby in, in order to undertake that pre-departure training. So all of those things that involve a cost to the worker. Can we then Mike and then a colleague over here? Who's next here? Danielle, just to the point you were before about productivity in relation to the High Commission's um, point. Um, yeah, while it's true that seasonal workers have a 25% productivity advantage, their costs are so much higher than other labour options. And that is most of our faculties in Australia. 
Um, I think one thing we struggle with in migration as a development policy is that so much of our development policy and the access up here is work around what happens in other countries, not what happens in Australia. And for this, uh, what happens in Australia is the most important thing. Uh, we'll always be able to find people to come. Uh, you might have some country cohort effects and stuff like that. But at the moment, it's that there are other cheaper options for employers, and that's driving behavior. And it's sort of only getting worse. Like the immigration department just recently introduced a border conflict labor agreement, which is going to, at the margins, you know, hurt some of this stuff as well. Uh, I just wondered if you can sort of, I guess, deeper into the house, uh, house position on that, on, on this. Uh, and I know you've worked closely with your government colleagues, uh, but uh, how to sort of go about the, the long term issue of other migrants affecting the development outcomes in the city. Sure. Um, just to say, it, it is, as I mentioned before, it is one of our big ongoing challenges. Um, so, for example, when the government was coming up with packages around what they could do around labour shortages in Australia, very much at the table, um, looking at how we can amend specific labour schemes to better work for employee, employers, but we also work really closely with industry where we can. So big horticulture lobby groups, industry groups like Ausbeds and the Australian Fresh Food Alliance, they are really strong advocates um, of these schemes. And I guess the way that they see their workforce going forward when you talk to them is they say, well, the first, the first thing we try and do when we're looking at our workforce is we try and get Australians, number one. Number two, um, they really look at the seasonal worker program because unlike backpackers, they're linked to the employer. So their employment in Australia, if they get an option to go to a party or a, a, something you buy or a bay, they're not going to run off tomorrow. So what they've found, <laughs> this is what they tell us, that when they get, they can get um, seasonal workers linked to them as the employer for a period of time. So whether it's six months, nine months, nine, nine weeks, they're actually more likely to get productivity and they're often returning, so they're actually become more productive each year. Backpackers, they say, um, on the whole, um, they're, they're important for the surge periods because you can never really predict when you're actually going to have to pick your fruit. Um, so they really rely much more on backpackers for the, for the end and the peaks of the season, but less so for the steam jobs. Um, the other thing that, I guess the, what you're also highlighting, I mean, general migration policy and how that how that pans out quite important. At the moment, our migration policy is, is um, mostly around bringing in high-skilled workers. Um, so things, some of the some of the things that we've got in Australia are around designated area migration agreements um, that we've got, I think there's around seven in Australia. They're typically more in the high-skilled area. So when um, the New Horticulture Award, the new uh, labour agreement was being developed with Ausbed, we were very much at the table as part of those discussions because we were concerned of course, that that would erode specific preferences. What's really important to understand is the PLS and the SWP are actually quite cheap compared to um, bringing people in through the Dharma that I just mentioned or bringing it through a horticultural ward because you still have to contribute to the skills training within Australia. So it means that it's significantly cheaper to bring people in, whether they're low-skilled or semi-skilled, under the PLS or the SWP. The big difference, obviously, for backpackers, um, who, as I said, can move any time they want, um, is that it's the accommodation aspects of it, it's the compliance um, arrangements that actually cost more. So it does depend a little bit on the industry, but we do know big employers like Costa, um, they're increasingly not working through labour hire because over time 
they've seen that their workforce is predominantly going to be, will increase, they're, they're planning on doubling their numbers that they recruit through the seasonal worker program over time because of the productivity, the return workers, um, and all this, also the stability that they get through this program. So I guess what's really important is that, as you said, that we're part, we are at the table and um, the types of people that we have working in a lot of the schemes, they don't, or many don't come from a development background. We, we work really closely with people. We have people in our team that, comes from, that come from those backgrounds, including in the Pacific Labor Facility. We have people from Home Affairs that have worked closely on visa settings. Yeah, hi, my name is Tamika, and I'm a social development um, practitioner. Um, so my question is around um, movement of labor, and especially skilled labor, uh, between the islands themselves, so between the different Pacific island nations. So for example, the, are there any studies, you know, or is there data available through the World Bank, etc., um, on, say, skilled labor moving from Fiji to, say, Nauru, or Tongan, uh, you know, skilled labor moving to other island nations? Who would like to say that? <laughs> I can't put my finger on any research, but I know it exists, and I think also to say that it's a really big policy agenda, and it came up last year at the Skills Summit that referred in Suva um, in terms of the question to the Pacific is really, we ca they can't be just focused on Australia and New Zealand um, markets. What's really important is the movement within the region. Um, Fiji in particular plays a role around the region in terms of skilled labour, um, but Fiji itself also um, at, in terms of the question itself, actually also provides employment for a lot of Pacific Islanders in Fiji because of the large size of their economy. Um, so I think there is probably research. Maybe Richard knows more up in the audience. Carmen um, Boyd Graff has written a piece on the Melanesian Speedhead Group, that program that was set up to encourage migration within uh, Pacific region, included in the Melanesian countries, but very few have migrated through that scheme. But just to add to that, one of the one of the big policy challenges that was discussed at the Skills Summit last year is it's actually easier for a lot of Pacific countries to get someone from the UK or from the Philippines or Indonesia than it often is from another Pacific country. So they themselves recognise that it's that, that there is actually an element of regionalism which hasn't yet been fully taken advantage of going forward, which does which is on the policy agenda. Um, but um, we haven't yet, well, I don't think the collective group has yet got to the point where they've got some tangible solutions about what that might look like and whether we pilot it with certain sectors where there's like pylons in Ports Labor, um, not always from the Pacific. Next up. Just to add on what you said, the Northern has actually received workers from the Solomon Islands uh, through the MSGA framework. Uh, we have nurses from the Solomon Islands working in Vanuatu. We have also received teachers from Fiji. Uh, that have worked uh, in Vanuatu and teach in different schools in Vanuatu. And I think that Vanuatu is also sending them out as well to Nauru, to other countries as well, uh, teachers. But uh, for the last, I think they've sent them to Cook Islands, the nurses to Cook Islands as well. And so um, it is, uh, I think, more developed in the future, this inter-change uh, of skills between these big island countries. I, mean, I think it is interesting that a lot of the, well, the interrate traditional mobility that has occurred, some has occurred through these pre-existing schemes, like, like the MSG agreement. Um, others have just happened quite by chance. Um, so you have a, a lot of um, Fijians in Marshall Islands, for example, that's largely because of the, the 
Fiji government's retirement policy, which forces teachers out at a certain age and so they go to lunch at home. It's got micros, and everyone saw Mark get in early, so thanks for your patience, Mark. Uh, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> G'day, um, I'm Michael Rose, I'm an anthropologist and uh, research fellow at the Dead Parole Centre. Um, I've got two very speedy comments and two very speedy questions, so I won't be in them. The first one is your comment on one of the policy objectives um, being to uh, have outreach to people in rural areas. Uh, you know, Spent a lot of time talking to returned and prospective SWP and Timor Leste. And just to use that particular example that I, I think has probably got wider relevance, um, there they've got 30,000 young people uh, reaching um, working age each year. A lot of them have graduated from high school, they speak a bit of English, they would all go, if possible, all of them, uh, most of them. Uh, just the idea that um, sort of illiterate farmer with tuberculosis from the hills who doesn't speak English is going to go instead. It's, I mean, it's a lovely idea, but uh, unfortunately there's people ahead of them in line. And I imagine it's through all these countries. And it's a nice aspiration to have, but I just wonder if there's any sort of outreach or consideration being given to how sort of Australian policies in terms of bringing people in might sort of interact with the education systems in these countries where, you know, for the most part, they're okay with graduating people or graduating people from high school. The problem is there's just no jobs. Um, the second one is the idea that uh, labour mobility is going to spur business, like small businesses beginning in um, you know, uh, nations of the Pacific and Timor-Leste. You know, once again, Timor-Leste is my uh, example. I've spoken to people there and there's just, I mean, it's, it's like 181 countries on the ease of being doing business in index. It's like 160. I mean, you just can't start a business. That said, what my research has found is that what they have in the businesses um, is uh, sort of family unit, sort of networks of families which look after their own. They invest in education, housing, and healthcare. So there's that. Um, and the two quick questions. One is permanency, with a question mark. So now I understand it's different with people from different places, but my um, PLS friends in um, Warrnambool, most of them, as I guess in communities, they want to stay. Which, honestly, if you've coped for three years of chopping up meat in Wonderful, seems quite reasonable. So I was just... <laughs> <laughs> we proved at that point you really are a premium in Australia. You can come from here. Why not? Just so I'm wondering what thinking is happening in that space. And finally, um, not related to this at all, um, the first talk by Farah, thank you, very interesting. I was wondering, was I missing... Where's automation fit in there? Uh, because, you know, in 2050, obviously, we're, you know, cars are going to be driving themselves, etc. So, mm. that's all we've got. So we're actually almost at time, and our colleague over here has been patiently waiting, so we're going to, I'm going to break tradition, and we're going to take two questions at once, and then we'll leave the I'm just interested in um, the issues around the management of the work ready pool. Um, we're supporting the ministry in Curibus to improve quality of managing the work ready pool, so this meeting when they come to Curibus and respecting you know, workers, it's been quite a challenge to put in front of the workers suitably you know, um, experienced and workers genuinely work ready workers. So I'm interested to know what, what issues you discovered in management um, with the DMG example. I can go first on the permanent resident question, which does come up quite a bit. 
that said, um, not everybody wants it, um, but I guess your question is really about pathways to permanent residency. One of the things about um, Warrnambool is it's part of the, the designated area migration program for the South Coast. So I guess um, just like anyone anywhere in the world, they can apply for Australian migration. So having a foot in the door, having a job, um, having a work reputation does mean that they're in a really good situation to apply for but permanent residency. Normal, right? Not no, yeah. no, because there's seven. Um, yeah. Look, it is, uh, it is one of those um, policy challenges that we're continually thinking and talking about. It's not an easy answer um, because you'd need to have, I guess, different requirements around the current, the current um, migration really doesn't allow for low-skilled, semi-skilled. It's very much, as you know, a high-skilled. So you have to look at a different kind of category around that. Um, but I think what we really want to do is see what happens at the end of the three years and how many of those workers do end up um, applying to different schemes. This is a, this is a kind of, um, it's an opportunity, but it's also a threat for some Pacific governments who don't want to lose all their skilled workers. So it's a balancing act. I mean, Fiji raises this point all the time. Um, I know that the carpenters that went to New Zealand and the end of the earthquake, something that continually gets raised, um, and they see that sometimes where it's the brain drain argument that I know many researchers have written on. So I think we will need a bit of a balance. Um, we're conscious of the argument around um, permanent residency, but at the moment, it's not something that is a kind of, it, it isn't something that's likely to be attached to the Pacific Labor Scheme in itself. If it was something that we were looking at for the Pacific, it would more be in the broader context um, of the Pacific rather than necessarily linked specifically to um, the Pacific Labor Scheme, but yeah. And, and just, I think on, in Timor, um, given that they have had that long history around access to Portuguese passports, which is, has given them the opportunities, that's going to change them quite, that's going to change their opportunities quite a lot with Brexit as well. So I think Timor's opportunities and the way that they're actually doing a lot of marketing in Australia will mean that um, the pathway for the Timorese actually um, means that they will actually be in a lot of areas in Australia they're doing that really proactively in areas that need labour. So I think there will be opportunities down the track for Timorese in regional Australia because they're more likely to want to settle. Um, a lot of Pacific Islanders are saying they don't they don't want that because they're attached to their land, they're not interested in um, permanent residency. Yeah, well obviously not being <laughs> Just one final word from Matt or Sarah. Nice and brief. Yeah, perhaps responding to Sky. Pretty brief. I was going to respond to the technology question. And I guess, like, yes or no on automation. You can probably use tech to kind of replace workers, but there are occupations that were probably be cannot be automated, etc. Um, and there is actually evidence that even when moving up the automation scale for certain countries would create um, other low-skilled jobs that will need to be taken up, such as like managing robots, etc. But then also, like, when we talk about uh, when we talk about uh, automation, you're really asking whether we should be actually destroying the job of the most abundant resource in the world, which is low-skilled labor. And there is a discussion to have about um, how did these barriers to labor mobility kind of distort the incentives of um, firms that are pursuing technology that are labor destroying. So. Really, really quickly, please. Okay, so the utility of 
person said in rural areas. Um, but, I mean, I think that's that's really a driver for this um, this regional initiative in PNG, and I think it, well, it already is um, resulting in more workers from rural areas um, being recruited. Having said that, even within those districts, you know, people in urban areas are really having an advantage. So I think that's an ongoing effort. Uh, Tonga, um, I gave an example about a World Bank project there. I think it's a little bit different because there are just so many workers. Um, Participating in these schemes, that uh, in some ways the market is is being um, is being tapped out already, and so I think there is that, that prospect of going to outer islands, with, which have not so many workers today. Um, uh, on the question of the futility of spurring uh, business um, of reintegration, I mean, to some extent, I agree. I mean, I think that whole reintegration argument does assume that all that's lacking is skills and money, um, and then everything will be resolved in solution. So, yeah, I mean, that, that comment about there being these constraints to business is absolutely right. Um, but I, you don't want to take it to the extreme. It doesn't mean that things are totally hopeless, and it doesn't mean that there isn't a prospect for some business development. So I think there's a balance to be had there. Uh, in response to the question on managing the worker equal, um, there are lots of, lots of issues. Um, I, I mentioned the, the absence of any ranking um, Quite a big selection. Uh, there are things around not maintaining databases of workers, which are, these are across many countries. I'm not speaking about a particular specific country. Um, I think at the heart of the matter, though, is that these labor sending units are being unfunded. The, the governments are just not interested in them. They're not providing them with a budget. They're not providing them with adequate staff. Um, and I guess that, for me, is, is the refreshing thing about um, the reforms in PNG that the government actually is interested in this. So we have a wrap up now, and sorry to those who did miss out on a question. Please, please join me in thanking our panel members. You have been listening to Dev Policy Talks, a podcast by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. And thanks for listening.